Good morning. Uh, in your bulletins, if you're married, I want to draw your attention to this. Um, we are uh, back in January when the elders and I had our uh, our annual elders retreat, where we could uh, dream and and uh, pray and seek the Lord on what we wanted to see happen this year. One of the things we wanted to see happen was a married couples retreat, and uh, we are in the process of trying to plan that. We want to kind of gauge the level of interest uh, in that. Uh, it'd be $279 for a Friday night, Saturday all day, stay the night, Sunday until lunchtime retreat at Lake Williamson Retreat Center down in Carlinville, Illinois. Uh, it'd be a motel-style room, uh, buffet-style meals. Uh, they've got an indoor pool, a lake, uh, miles and miles of hiking trails over about 310 or 320 acres, I forget what they told me, uh, billiards and foosball and all the indoor stuff, plus two gyms, two racquetball courts, and a bunch of other stuff. So um, it seems like a, a reasonable price for what they're, uh, what they're offering. Uh, we really want to encourage people in their marriages. We know a lot of couples have trouble getting away for a weekend or, or even trying to plan something like that. So we're going to plan the weekend for you and give you plenty of time just to be with your spouse and to also be with your brothers and sisters. If you're interested in going on that, though, we do need to get a date nailed down. They've got uh, most of September and all of October open at this point on, the week, on those weekends, and we'd like to have one of those. I had them pencil one in for us. Uh, but if you're interested, we need to try to start firming that those details up and start making plans. So um, let us know uh, if cost is an issue. Um, we'll try to work with you on that, okay? But we'd like to try to do this uh, to encourage people in their marriages um, as they're here. So if you're interested, see me uh, today or this week or sometime in the next week or so so that we can start to firm some of those details up. All right, uh, we're going to finish uh, Mark chapter 8 today, so if you want to turn there as I tell you a little story. Uh, one of my favorite movies is the movie City Slickers. Any of you seen it? All right, a few of you. Uh, it is a funny movie. It's hilarious in spots, okay. and, and it's about an advertising executive named Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, who is... Uh, is at midlife, and he's kind of in right on the edge of a full-blown midlife crisis. And he, he hates his job. Uh, he and his wife are kind of not really fighting, but just kind of disconnected from each other. Uh, he, has, he has two pretty good kids, but he's just not excited about anything in his life, not his, not his job, not his family. Not any of the success that he's achieved, it just is not satisfying or filling him. And for his 40th birthday, he has a couple of buddies who are insane, and um, seriously, they took him for his 39th birthday to the running of the bulls in Pamploma, um, where he got gored and all this kind of stuff. But um, funny movie, but, um, or either I have a sick sense of humor or one or the other, but um, maybe both. 
But in any case, uh, they, they decide for his 40th birthday that they're going to take Mitch on a cattle drive from Colorado uh, into Texas and his big herd, you know, kind of like uh, on Rawhide when they grew up, you know, and here they're going to be saddled up and, yeah, you know, driving the cattle down to Texas to this other ranch. And, of course, along the way, they learned valuable lessons like uh, rum raisin ice cream is the perfect after-dinner compliment to grilled sea bass, and you shouldn't uh, run your coffee grinder in the morning or it stampedes the herd or these kinds of things, right? But also along the way, uh, Curly becomes sort of friends with this rough, tough uh, trail boss uh, named Curly, who is played by Jack Palance. Um, and when, when Mitch first meets Curly, he is terrified. He says, did you see that guy? He looked like a saddlebag with eyes. <laughs> okay. Uh, he's just this rough, tough, manly guy. But along the way, um, Mitch, kind of the city-fied, city slicker, becomes friends with Curly, the rough, tough trail boss. And Curly says, you know, Mitch, a lot of guys come out here, they're trying to find themselves or whatever. He goes, he goes they want to know what the secret of life is. I know what the secret of life is, and I'll tell you. He says, man, you're going to tell me, all right, what is it? He goes, it's this. And Billy looks at him and goes, the secret of life is your finger? <laughs> he goes, no, you moron. Uh, the secret of life is one thing. And he's like, all right, I'm game. What's the one thing? And he says, well, Billy, well, actually, Mitch, that's what you have to figure out. And here in this passage in Mark, Jesus is going to make it clear that when it comes to his life and his earthly ministry, that there is one thing that he is about. And because of that, that there needs to also be one thing that his disciples are about as well. And so if you've got your Bible, I want, to, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
Now, these four verses, these, these initial four verses, uh, verses 27 through 30, are the hinge of the book of Mark. Up to this point, uh, what Jesus is trying to do is to convince people of his identity, that he is the Messiah. But after that, like a, like a door on a hinge, Jesus' ministry is going to turn. And Mark is going to show from here on, not, not just, he's going to assume that Jesus is the Messiah and that you've been convinced up to this point. But from here, he's going to begin to show what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be and therefore what following Jesus as Messiah means. But up to now, he's been focused on showing you and proving to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But after this, the direction of Jesus' ministry and teaching is going to turn and show people, what kind of Messiah am I? And so this is a very important text. Um, In verse 27, Mark sets the scene for what's about to happen. Uh, They've left Bethsaida. Bethsaida is in the far northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And they're going to go north a ways, uh, up to a city that's um, called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's in the far northern reaches of, uh, of the, the land of Israel, in what was uh, originally given to the tribe of Dan, which was the, far nor- the, far, the furthest north tribe of Israel. There were 12 tribes. One of them was named Dan, and they got their inheritance at the far north corner of the land. This is really the bound, up to the boundaries of the nation of Israel. Jesus has left Galilee. He's been on the other side of the Jordan, and now he's going way up north to Caesarea Philippi. And it's a, it's a long journey. Uh, it's probably uh, 20 miles from where he is to where he's going, and they're walking, and as they walk, they talk. And Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? Now, I want you to look at the answers here. The disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and some say uh, one of the prophets. Now, Look back, hang on, keep your finger right there and go back two chapters uh, to the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, okay? Uh, this is the introduction to the execution of John, but you're going to see some answers there. King Herod heard about this, in other words, King Herod Antipas had heard about what Jesus was doing. For Jesus' name had become well known, and some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. Now, go back to chapter 8. What do you see in those two passages? The answers that people are giving are exactly the same. Some are saying, well, he's John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. 
then, you know, that's probably a legitimate possibility. I mean, after all, there was probably even some family resemblance. Jesus and John were first cousins. But that's not who he is. And some were saying he's Elijah. Now, they did not mean that he was literally Elijah, uh, the Old Testament prophet, resurrected. What they meant was that Jesus was the Elijah that Malachi foretold would come before Messiah. And they're saying he is walking around, he's doing the same kinds of miracles that Elijah did, and therefore he must be the Elijah who was to come. Malachi told us 400 years ago that there would be Elijah who would come before the day of the Lord. This has got to be the guy. And somebody said, no, it's not, he's not that. He's, but he is a prophet. He's like one of the prophets of old who had power and who taught with authority comes from God. But they've all missed it. They've all missed uh, who Jesus really is. And Jesus is about to ask him a penetrating question. He says, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, and, and Peter answers for the group. He's kind of the, the spokesperson. Uh, Peter always entered a, a room mouth first. Um, he would uh, buy his shoes uh, in threes so he could always have one to put in his mouth, right? Um, but in any case, here he is a hero. And he says, you are the Christ. In other words, it's the, it's the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah, as we would say it in English. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who was to come. John was Elijah, and you are the promised Messiah. Is Peter correct? Jesus certainly thinks he is. He affirms what he said. Um, he's either correct, or Jesus is the most narcissistic human being that's ever lived. <laughs> Yes, I'm the Messiah. I mean, if that wasn't true, then Jesus is an amazingly um, narcissistic person. But it is true. And so Jesus just receives it. And he says, he, he says to them something really interesting. Look at verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why is that? I think the reason is that Jesus, while Jesus appreciates their faith, and in fact their faith in trust that he is the Messiah is a precondition for what he's about to tell them, they have a vastly different idea of what Messiah, what kind of Messiah he is going to be, as we'll see. And so when he begins to tell them what kind of Messiah he's going to be in just a couple of verses, they do not get it. And so he doesn't want them to go around spreading Jesus is the Messiah until they have gotten clear in their own mind what that means, that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus is going to explain to them that while, yes, there is going to be a day when Messiah is going to come and he's going to be the conquering king who will reign from Jerusalem on David's throne and establish the kingdom of God on earth, 
Even though that day is coming, there's also the period during which Jesus is the suffering servant of the last uh, section of Isaiah. That surely he took up our infirmities, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, that it was God's will to crush him. Right? And they're not prepared for that. Not at all. And so, and so Jesus says, keep it quiet for a while. Don't tell anybody. What you're saying is true, but don't tell anybody yet. And so in verse 31 to 33, he's going to explain what kind of Messiah that he's going to be. And they get really confused. Uh, Jesus it says that Jesus told them all that was going to happen to him. Now, let, just read it with me here. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, huh? Many things, what? Be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. You've got to be kidding me. And that he must be killed, excuse me? And after that, rise again three days later. Is this the kind of Messiah they're expecting? No, say it with me. No, this is not what they're expecting. What they're thinking is when Jesus called them and, and they started to initially think that this guy might be worth following because he might be the Messiah, they're expecting a religious, political, military figure who is going to set the nation free from the Romans and that they are going to be like the new cabinet officers in the new king's administration. And so they're measuring, the, measuring for the drapes at the palace and Jesus is telling them, well, that'll happen, but not yet. What's going to happen right now is we're going to continue doing what we're doing. And oh, by the way, everybody that's important as a, uh, as a religious or political figure in our nation as a people is going to reject me. I'm going to get killed, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again. Now imagine that you had been expecting the first outcome and Jesus is telling you th about this one. And you're saying, this is what you're thinking. Excuse me? I've been following you around for the last three years thinking that I was going to get a cabinet office in the new kingship? I was going to be like, you know, Jesus' secretary of the treasury? You know, chief of uh, the state department or something like that? And you're telling me that that I've follow, been following around spending my life savings and everything else on a guy who's going to wind up dead? You cannot be serious. I mean, everybody's getting their best John McEnroe on, right? You cannot be serious. And in fact, that's what, Je what Peter takes Jesus aside and does. He starts winding him up over this. And you know what Jesus says? He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, you're the devil. Now, this is his friend. I don't have any friends that I've ever referred to as the devil. I don't know about you. But if you do, that's generally the end of the friendship. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. You know, I had an ex-girlfriend once that referred to me that way, <laughs> okay? But generally speaking, you don't say that to your friends. 
right? And he says, Peter, you're the devil. Why? Because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, and by the way, what was the temptation that Jesus went through? Do you remember from Matthew's account? Satan takes him up at the last temptation. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point on the gate, on the wall going around the temple, looking, overlooking the Kidron Valley. And he says to him, he shows to him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Satan's temptation to Jesus was this, that there can be a crown without there being a cross. You don't have to suffer and die, Jesus. You don't have to do that, Jesus. You can get everything you want and not have to follow God's plan. And Jesus correctly identifies what, Jesus, what Peter is telling him as being inspired by thoughts other than those of God and his plan. And he says, Peter, Satan thinks like that. Thinks about earthly glory instead of heavenly praise and honor. And this is the way it has to be, Peter. There will be a kingdom, but it's not yet. And ultimately, there is one thing that I came to earth to do. And that is to die and be crucified and raised for the sin of of people and if that doesn't happen the kingdom won't happen either there is one thing that jesus must do he heals a lot of people he does a lot of good things but there's one ultimate thing he must do and that is die as a sacrifice as the lamb of god for your sin and for mine and if he doesn't do it then satan has won and so he says to peter you're the devil don't say that to me, Peter. Don't encourage me to do what is tempting to me. Which is to avoid this whole thing. But if Jesus doesn't do it, guess what? We're in a heap of trouble. And as Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Right? What was the joy that was set before Jesus? you and me so he says to peter get behind me don't tell me that this is not the thing that god would have me to do what i've just told you about suffering and dying and despair and humiliation that is what god would have me to do by the way do we ever just as an aside here do we ever get uh disappointed with God because his our expectations of what would be a good idea and his plan for us do not match up <laughs> Peter's having that experience right now he's saying but Jesus my expectations were over here and Jesus is saying yes but God's will is over here which do you want to which would you rather have your expectations met or God's will I submit to you that Jesus tells us the same thing a lot of times. Uh, 
Let's look at these last four verses, uh, or last five verses, uh, verse 34 to 38. Titled that section, A Disciple is a Dead Man. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to lose his life, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the entire world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What he is saying is this, is that following me means that as of today, whenever today is, when you decide to follow Jesus, that your life as you know it is over and you're dead. You might not know it yet, but you're dead. You no longer have control over your life, but Jesus does because you are submitting yourself to him. He says whoever loses his life, whoever dies, in other words, for my sake, will save his life. Ultimately, in other words, if you give your life to Jesus today or a year ago or whenever that was, then you have lost your life. Jesus now has control over you. But if you try to save your life, in other words, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to let my freak flag fly. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it with whom I want to do it. And nobody can say anything to me. Then you ultimately wind up losing your life. Why? Because ultimately, everybody stands before God and they go into one of two categories. Either those whose names are written into the Lamb's book of life who gain eternal life forever. Or people who decided they were going to do their own thing and let God do his thing, but I don't want to have anything to do with that. And they get to spend eternity separated from God doing their own thing in a place of separation called hell where nothing of God will bother them anymore. But it's a terrible, horrible place because anything worth having comes from God. (sighs) Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, even if you actually suffer martyrdom, ultimately you receive the life that is really life. But if you do your own thing and you want nothing to do with following me, ultimately you get the death that is really death. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, you remember that scene in Titanic where they're both out on the bow of the ship and they're up on the railing and and cheekbones, uh, DiCaprio says, uh, um, I'm the king of the world, right? You remember that part? Okay. Everybody remembers that part. Even if you've not seen the movie, you've seen that part from the previews, right? I'm the king of the world. What if you became king of the world? Jesus says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. 
Amen? If you're king of the world, if everything in the world is yours, and if at a word from you, the power of life and death happens, if at a word from you, laws are written and things are changed and you have all power to do all things all over the entire planet. If you are not right with God, you eventually still die and go to hell. What can you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. And so ultimately you choose which death you're going to have. Are you going to die today for the sake of Jesus? And receive an eternal life? Or are you going to live today and die eternally? Which do you want to do? Jesus says that is the choice for anyone who wants to be my disciple. And if you're going to be my disciple, you carry your hangman's rope with you. Because you're, it's the recognition that you are already dead. They might not have put you in the ground yet, but you're already dead as far as this world is concerned. Because you have a higher goal and a higher purpose in mind of following Jesus. No matter what happens to you today, if you've decided to follow Jesus, you've made the greatest swap in the world. You've made the greatest swap you could possibly make. Uh, It would be like if someone said, I'll trade you your bicycle for this new Mercedes S-Class. Okay, (laughs) who would not take that deal, right? Jesus is offering that kind of a deal, only one that makes even the new Mercedes look like a tricycle by comparison. If you lose your life for my sake, you ultimately find it. If you keep your life and reject me, you ultimately lose it. Personal uh, challenge here, a few questions. Number one uh, if you do, you believe first of all that Jesus is the Messiah. It matters a, a great deal. One of the the fundamental questions that every person must ask and answer for themselves before they die is this: Who do you say Jesus is? And it's not simply what you say, but what you f- believe in your heart that Jesus is. Who do you say that he is? If you believe that he is the Messiah, as Peter did, it matters further a great deal what kind of Messiah you think he is. There are a lot of people out there who not only believe, but teach that Jesus being Messiah means that the road is always straight and flat. And that Jesus is there in my life to smooth every difficulty, to make sure that when I go to the store, I get a good parking place, that nobody that I love or care about will ever get sick and die. No, I will not have any difficulties. None of my children will ever turn out uh, in an unspiritual way. Nothing bad will ever happen to me in short. That's what Peter thought that following Jesus was all about. Hey man, I got I got the I'm following the dude that can raise people from the dead. I mean, what can what what could go wrong? And a lot of people think that. Jesus says that's not who he is. He's not there in your life or in mine to make sure that we never go through any pain. 
Because as Jesus taught elsewhere, a servant is like his master. And if the master suffered crucifixion and death and suffering and rejection, then what are you and I signing up for? Possibly more of the same, right? Is Jesus going to bring pain and suffering and difficulty into your life? Yes. Guarantee it. Because his goal is not our comfort, but our character. So if you believe that Jesus is Messiah, what sort of Messiah do you believe him to be? Another question. Is there anything that you are giving in exchange for your soul? People have a long list of stuff that they do give in exchange for their soul. Some people will sell their soul for their company. Or they will sell their soul for meeting the desires of their glands. Or they will sell their soul uh, for their family. Or for their house. Or for their car. Or for their hobby. And they can't be bothered, frankly, with Jesus or what he has to say about anything. And I am not naive enough to believe that in a room this size with this many people that everyone has traded all of their stuff in for following Jesus. But let me tell you, with all the love of Christ, if there is anything in your life which you are hanging on to instead of following Jesus, that that will ultimately prove faithless to you. It will not grant you the life which is really life. You will not have ultimately a way of escaping ultimate death. That will disappoint you. Whatever it is. Even if, it's, is, even if it is your spouse and even if he or she is the greatest person who has ever drawn breath after Jesus. Ultimately, if you are giving anything or anyone In exchange for your soul, you'll be disappointed ultimately, completely, and tragically. Is there anything that you're giving in exchange for your soul? Nothing is worth the price. Last question. Are you trying to save your life or are you losing it for the sake of Christ? You know, I don't know how many of you know it, but back in the old days uh, when they had knights, Remember those? You know, Sir Lancelot, Sir Gawain, and, you know, these guys, right? Uh, Back during medieval times, when a a man became a knight, it's a really interesting process. What you did, if you wanted to become a knight, is that you would kneel down before your lord, and you would bow your neck to him, and you would hand him a sword. And you had just placed yourself in a vulnerable position. Because if he wants to, he can take that sword and end your life that quick. But what you were doing with that ceremony is you were saying to your Lord, I am giving you control of my life completely. I am losing my life for your sake. 
And therefore, whatever you ask me to do from this point forward, I am going to obey and do. Understand? All right. If you can, I realize some of you can't, I'd like you to kneel with me before our Lord and bow our heads. And offer him our lives. Father.